on air today we got a special guest as we always do it's been a few weeks since we've been on the air but we're back with Shawshank Gouda an expat who lives in Taiwan now Shawshank maybe you could introduce yourself a bit more other than expat in Taiwan you could say a little more about <laughs> yeah I think Nate and I had actually a closer working relationship uh, I've been in Taiwan for a good part of almost three years now, a couple of months short of three years. Uh, it's been a good journey. Uh, moved in here for a job. Uh, I work for Acer and then I also do, I do marketing and then look at mostly gaming side of things and also a lot of tools and relationships uh, with some of the, the, the clients that we have who give us tools. So that's part of my job. But then I in Taiwan, being the the COVID heaven that is, uh, we have good food, good hiking. So that's basically what I've been indulging in the last uh, last two and a half three years. Uh, before this, I've, I've I've been working for almost um, wow, it's thirteen years now. I never realized that. Okay, just over thirteen years. Uh, worked through a BPO segment, uh, IT segment, uh, got into social media. I made cheese for a while. It was uh, quite interesting. I sold cheese a lot more than I made cheese, but they, we were in the cheese business for a bit. Um, tried um, dabbling with the restaurant and a bar a little bit. And then after all of that, we decided to stick to marketing. Yeah, that's me a little bit. Okay, <laughs> and just to jump back, do you play video games for a living? Did you just say, I'm a professional video game player? I did not say that, but I did <laughs> used to play. I did used to play video games professionally for a bit. There was this, and this was like 15, 18 years ago. This was like really silly ages when, and this is also in India. I have to realize that the market in India is like very tiny, tiny. Their parents didn't like you to do anything other than studying, basically. Right. So uh, I had like a short career where I won um, regionals, but never got on to go forward because there was not the, the, the system didn't just support uh, pro gaming 15, 18 years ago. It just didn't exist. So, yeah, now I just dabble. Uh, have a you're in my den right now. You can't see anything because obviously you're looking at me. But this is where I have my setup and I dabble with video games every almost every day. Yeah. Okay. And you're from India, right? I am from India, from Bangalore, uh, India, down south. So that's like the tech hub of India. Yeah. And yeah. Shashank, I'm, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions that I already know the answer to. So, But I, I just want to ask you, because we're, sure. you know, there's people listening who don't know you. So so just to give a little background, Shashank and I did some work together. I was on uh, the agency side uh Shawshank's on the client side uh Acer Computers Predator Gaming so we've done some work together in in that space the PC gaming marketing space and you know what I actually know quite a few 
you could say uh, former glory days gamers who are in marketing. There's a lot of guys that seem to be in marketing who are like, oh yeah, I used to be like almost pro like 15, 20 years ago at Counter-Strike or something. There's a few guys at We Are Social who talk like that. There's like, I seem to meet a lot of these guys in our generation. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's that's just the industry that we live in as well. I guess, yeah. But go on, where are we heading here? <laughs> so I, I, when I think of somebody working in the gaming business, uh, I always think about when I was a kid and sort of thinking about video games and thinking about, oh, that'd be so cool to work at a video game company or something, you know? And obviously you don't work at a video game company, you work on hardware side, computers, but not the game developers. Uh, can you talk right. a little bit about that? Like, what is it like working in you know, the gaming arena, you could say, on a professional basis? I I guess it's like a little bittersweet as well, because I, I remember when I was younger and we used to play video games, like, oh, it'd be so cool if you work for, and back in the days, it was Activision and the Blizzards of the world who are like doing big. We had EA, uh, surprisingly, uh, most wanted was my forte. And I still I still go visit the local malls it's, and don't tell... Uh, Hopefully, uh, the people who are competing don't watch this podcast and <laughs> still let me compete. So I just go there just for like weekend money sometimes. You're just passing by and you see like people playing video games for money and they're like, yeah, I don't mind jumping in. Just like make like 5,000 bucks and just walk out. <laughs> you have like the weekend money for that weekend. But uh, it was like a dream, right? Like it's not, it's something that I knew with my education at that point was not something which is going to be possible. All these companies were abroad. Uh, India was such a closed ecosystem. Nobody like really got hurt. The only foreigners you could speak to was if you were in a PPO or something, right? So that's how you sort of climb your ladder towards as well. And how I happened to come into Acer was also a lot of, um, a lot of, I took this chance and I took another chance. I was in social media and I didn't, I wasn't like really looking forward to a career in that. And then somebody said, hey, you want to do marketing uh, for this uh, for this startup company? I'm like, yeah, sure. And that sounds like fun. I'll make that along with my cheese. And then went there. And then that was that was a good stint for about a year. And I couldn't sustain it because obviously I didn't know anything about marketing. <laughs> and then I was just like guesstimating everything at that point. And then it was advertising. And then at that point, you're already starting to talk to a lot of companies like Adobe who who you've just seen logos on your computer, right? And then, so it's like, it's like one step at a time. So you have Adobe and Microsoft and Wipros and then you move up to uh, work in Amazon and then suddenly your whole world opens up to you. Amazon also has its gaming labs uh, internally, right? So they also beta test a lot of their games and then you could be a part of that. Uh, it was like a good journey that you're like, ah, okay, so I am actually helping out in, the development of a game or the building of a game and you're beta testing the game you're actually trying to come up with the names for the games and stuff so it's it was already a little um, um a little bit of a dream control back in my previous company and then when they said oh, i want to come over to acer i'm like yeah i was with dell before and acer is like another computer company and i understand hardware a lot because i used to build my own machines and stuff like back in the days I mean, there was no manuals. I'm like, okay, I guess this goes here. I guess this goes here. And then I like switch it on and maybe it goes on. Maybe it goes on. So you, you didn't have um, like a soldering iron. You're just kind of randomly soldering things together and be like, yeah, that. No, that's no, no. Like, it wasn't okay. that crazy. <laughs> no, it was just like randomly putting stuff together uh, in the motherboard saying, okay, these connectors are different. It goes here. I guess if you push the button, it's supposed to work now. So <laughs> basically that's how I learned about the different components. And then Dell helped me a lot more. And then when I came to Acer, it was almost like, 
it was I was like fish in the water. It was easy. And then somewhere in the middle, they're like, hey, we're realigning. Uh, is there like a discipline you want to choose? You want to commercial? You want to gaming? You want to creators? And how are we looking at this? I'm like, yeah, definitely I want to do gaming. That's that's where I want to go. And then that's how that's how we came to be. And that's also, I think, uh, around the same time, our relationship began professionally a little bit as well. Uh, is when I came into the gaming team and I looked at the tools and stuff. So, uh, so when I go to these events now uh, as a sponsor, uh, like uh, just for that I can be sponsor like uh, IEM, which is Counter Strike, which is something that I used to play as a kid, uh, and IEM was like the pinnacle. And I'm sitting there in the rows watching this game live. It was, it is, it is basically a dream come true. It is. Uh, yeah, I was there in that audience. Um, I mean, not in that audience. Like the time I went was COVID, so it was like exactly thirty people in that stadium. But then uh, Nate and I, we have been to a few of these events. Like I think one of the most memorable ones I have. I know we've gone to bigger ones, but I think for me the most memorable one was Japan. Uh, yeah, in Tokanami. <laughs> it was like out somewhere, just like by a. Uh, by an airport, you're in like this gaming stadium, and the, the whole energy, the audience, it was it was nice. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. So, but, yeah. so to, just to take a step back, so we're talking about esports right now. So these are these are like what you would call professional gamers, people who get paid to game, and these are people who compete professionally. There's different teams, like any sports team, could be like the the NBA, but they're playing a certain video game. So for IEM the intel extreme masters this is an event that uh acer predator gaming sponsors and they do counter-strike but there's also uh this event you're talking about in japan and that was with rainbow six well thanks yes yeah let's see so rainbow six i'd say a lot a lot trendier these days than than counter-strike is can you can you talk about these games and what is it about yeah. them that like allows people to play on a competitive basis in a league? I think it starts from the basis where I think uh, Rainbow Six is newer, but if you go back to Counter-Strike, when, when I started playing it, it was like Counter-Strike 1.1, uh, is when I started. And this was like uh, running off the Half-Life engine back in the days. Uh, and it was basically LAN gaming, right? So it's like 12 people in a, in a room, you had to draw, and when, when we used to have uh, competitions, we'd have a curtain drawn behind us to separate the two sides of the room, and then there used to be like a bunch of people just standing around. Prize money used to be whatever, like a hundred bucks or something, just something stupidly silly. But that was enough. We weren't competing for the money also. It was just that you built a team, uh, you came there. These are first-person shooter games, which means you have the gun in front of you, and then you're looking at a perspective if you held a gun in your own hands, right? And you're shooting people. And then uh, you also have certain strategies you want to do. There are two bomb sites usually, or there's a hostage situation. And that's the basic premises of the whole game. So one game, one, one team's like terrorists, one game's like counter-terrorists, one, one team's like counter-terrorists. And then you're trying to see who's able to outsmart the other team and win. This could be either by letting the bomb detonate or holding the hostage for a long time or just killing the other team completely, annihilating them. So these are all different mechanisms that you can make, right? So 
as you keep playing with different people, different people have different strategies and you start working with them to see, hey, like that was an unconventional move and I have an unconventional move, which could probably work together to form something which people don't expect and they will not expect to see us coming and we will probably take that round. And then it sort of snowballed in uh, most of my college days. I ended up destroying because of Counter Strike. Um, and then uh, as we as as the games evolved, I think Counter Strike became CS 1.5, 1.6. Then we had uh, CS Go, uh, which is uh, the global offensive, uh, which is uh, being played. I think we also had C Condition Zero somewhere in the middle, but then that was not that popular. Yeah, so that was like the evolution of that game. Um, it's still being played in IEM 15 years after, um, and I'm sure it's going to happen next year as well. So 16th year of playing competitively on a global scale, sponsored by Intel. Um, now, Six Siege is sort of a derivative of that. Now, it, you have the plain vanilla game if you want to take Counter-Strike 1.6, and then everything other than that are layers on top of that base game. So Siege has like operators and different powers and different capabilities, which is already something that CS had, but just in terms of looks here, just the capabilities themselves change. Uh, you have like things to help you find out where they are, like peeking, um, spying on them. You also have obstacles. These aren't all just layers laid on top of the vanilla base game. So essentially all you do in competitive FPS shooting is just find the other person and kill that person. It's as simple as that. I guess there's a comparison with, you know, in, in real life sports, there's home team and away team. There's usually this like defensive team and offensive team and, and at least Counter-Strike and Rainbow Six, right? Very, very similar, yes. Uh, but both of them are playing the same game against each other. I yeah, I guess it's it's almost like American football. There's There's, you know, you take turns you know, being on the offensive side or the defensive side, it's, and it's very structured. It's not like basketball where it goes switches back and forth on a whim, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, kind of set and regimented. Now, uh, these events, uh, they usually have pretty young guys competing. What's, what's the usual age range of, of like an esports player? I think for Counter-Strike and stuff, I've seen a little bit more experience coming. Where I've seen, and I I will use this word with caution, where I've seen stupid ages, stupid is the word I would use is LOL. I've seen people who are like 14, 15 who are playing for a million dollars US at a global level, competing in front of 30,000 people at 13 years old. And I'm like, what is this guy made of? Like, this is, uh, for record, I think one of the biggest sporting events uh, which we used to sponsor until uh, 2018. And I happened to be in LOL in Korea. It took me a month of traveling in Korea just for this event, and it was insanely good. Now, that's a good part of being in esports and sponsorships and having things like this is you get to visit a lot of countries and stay there for like... It's not like you're going for a holiday. I'm living and working there for like two weeks, three weeks, a month sometimes, depending on how long the event is, right? So you're actually getting a lot more of that country. Like people usually, oh, did you see that place? Did you see this place? I'm like, no, I did not see that place, but I understand the culture of that country a lot better than a tourist would probably be exposed to, right? So that's where you understand why this game is even so huge in Korea. Like people live and talk about this game. They dress up. They are 
crazy. It was this was the scale at which that you're looking at, and people talk about that guy who won uh, Burza, I think, uh, for Fortnite. The guy who won uh, a, a few million bucks, right? Yeah, These the US, guys, right? I, I found out on the back end, um, they have sponsorship with Balenciagas and Louis Vuitton, and they drive. They have contracts with Mercedes, who are also the sponsors. They have Citibank credit cards because they have Citibank sponsorship. Like they don't spend too much money in their life at all on top of making money. So that's basically how your net value goes up like exponentially when you're playing games like this because your food is taken care of, your computers are taken care of, your travel is taken care of, like most daily, daily basic things that you want to spend your money on is taken care of. So it actually becomes a very uh, lucrative space to be in. And when you look at people who are like 14, 15, 16 years old, they're like, you've not seen life. And this is the way you're getting to experience life from the time you start earning, I think it's like a big, it's it's a huge impact on a lot of these people's lives. Uh, given yeah. that this, these are the things that they have a specific skill set in. I think we have like the child star phenomena. That's like a well-established trend, you know, like or a child star. They were really, they really blew up when they were younger, but then they, when they were developing, they had some issues because they, they didn't have like kind of a stable home life growing up. I wonder, wonder what we'll see with esports players, if we'll see anything like that, you know, if there'll be like a general trend in terms of the, the people whose whole life was games and then they made a bunch of money off of it, but then maybe they got too old. Maybe they weren't a very good streamer or something. They couldn't like carry it on, yeah. you know. What are they going to do next? And that's with every industry, right? Like if you look at the, the kid from Home Alone, I keep forgetting his name. Uh, Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. So if you look at it, he did like a bunch of movies when he was younger. I'm not saying he's poor or anything. It's just that I think his 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 daily life became completely different after he was like 20 years old. Like you still ride that wave till you're a little more older because people are still recognizing you. But as younger people or newer people keep replacing you, you get pushed further and further and further back down the road at a point where people don't... <clears throat> even realize who you are, even if you tell you tell them your name and what you did and show them a photo, nobody really cares about that anymore. That's when reality sort of starts hitting you, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, Macaulay Culkin, he's, he's bounced back in a way. Not as like a big movie star anymore, but like he has a lot of cameo appearances and he, he shows up on some like popular YouTube channels. He's got a podcast. Right. So he's doing his own, his own media kind of venture, you know. Right. But, uh, you know, there is kind of a, yeah, but, this cliche when you look at esports where, you know, a long time ago, your parents told you not to play games because it's a waste of time. But then now there's kids who dedicated their lives to it and then they made millions of dollars, you know. So it does pay off if you're really good. If you're, if you're that top, you know, 0. .000 whatever percent, you know, of gamers, you can be rich from this. And uh, oh, any thoughts even, on that? Even not rich, even like even a means of and just like the job that I do right now requires a certain level of knowledge and uh, passion. I would call it passion. It's not even knowledge. You should you should really want to play games. You should really follow some of these teams. You should really understand what streaming is. Watch people, binge people. You have to live some of that life, and that will only happen if you are a part of that ecosystem, right? So. Even if you don't make it big, like if I wasn't involved in these sports when I was, I don't know if I would be doing the same jobs uh, that I picked up along the way. And then 
eventually leading up to this. I don't know if I would. So yeah, it helps everybody. It's, it's just a skill set that you need to have. Cool. And then, you know, all that world traveling you mentioned, um, you know, you got to go to Korea for League of Legends, but we, we got to go to Poland and that's like, when you think esports, do you think Poland? I guess if you if you follow Counter Strike, you would, but I yeah. wouldn't have thought that, you know, beforehand. Europe is like a very big stronghold for first person shooters because I think PC penetration happened there uh, first, uh, and the consoles didn't penetrate as much into the EU market. And I think that's where that switch is uh, between America and Asia and Europe. And all of these, so like you had like the, the the consoles and the TVs of the US and then the handhelds from mostly Asia. And then you had like India, Middle East and Europe, like looking at PCs, right? So you can actually see these markets very, very uh, clearly and differently. And that's how, uh, that's how Europe has always been like a stronghold for first person shooter games, even from, and, and there's a reason also why, <clears throat> uh, IEM has been happening in Poland for 15 years now. Like, it's, it's crazy. Like, the, the amount of people who come there congregate on this one old mining town whose only came claim to fame, I think, at this point is that IEM stadium that exists there. And then it's just the whole city just sort of wakes up and becomes very energetic. It's, 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 uh, I think it's at a different epic level. But you also see, this is when you see a little bit of the older crowd also come in. You don't see those <clears throat> 12, 15 year olds who are playing this game anymore. You're like, you're looking at 15, 18, all the way to 45, because the game's been around that long, honestly. And that builds up a bigger fan following, a larger one. And I think that's what makes a bigger difference for IEM. Cool. All right. Well, jumping over to another topic. So you've been in Taiwan <laughs> a few years. And uh, you're Indian, and, and I used to live in Taiwan, and one of my first friends in, in Taipei was a guy from India. It was a young young man. And uh, <laughs> so there used to be a lot of Indians in Taiwan in the 90s. And would you say that is the case today? Oh, that's not – surprisingly, that's not something I've actually do, uh, dwelled deeper into, right? Like, as far as I know, we have about 3,000 – Indians and 3,000 to 4,000 Indians in Taipei and about 6,000 in Taiwan overall. 50% um, of them work for TSMC, 50% of them work for, work for like Academia Sinica or research papers and stuff like that. Um, and then the rest staggers out here and there are students mostly primarily. They have very, very few people who come to Taiwan for work like like being the states or something it's not that kind of an environment so the people here are mostly very very academic and that's why i have mostly expat friends but yeah that's besides the point um uh, I, I do definitely think that the scenario is changing and then the relationship with india and taiwan is also a lot better than what it used to be before people didn't even know what taiwan was like whenever i used to tell people i used to go to taiwan they used to fear thailand i have no idea why it's 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 Thai, very funny. It's, Thai something. Even Go ahead. Thai something. I was just saying that. Like if they they've heard of a country that starts with Thai, it's got to be Thailand. Yeah. It's, it's, what else? Would yeah. Be? So they didn't even know this existed. So now people are more aware. And then I also keep in touch with people. And I've traveled a bit uh, in my days as well. Like even with my previous job, I was in I was in Berlin for a while, and then was in UAE for a while. 
and then looking at those infrastructures and looking at Taiwan, I definitely like the whole culture uh, in Taiwan. I mean, you can't do this even in the States. You can't like grab a beer or have a 7-Eleven, walk out of the streets and just sit down and just on a bench and just like do nothing and just have beer. Nobody's going to come talk to you or well, mess with you. You just have your own time. If you're homeless, you could do that. I bet. I bet you could get away with that in America. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's definitely something I've seen before. Like a homeless guy drinking a beer outside of a Seven Eleven, definitely seen that. But yeah, I know what you're saying. Like you're, you're usually, usually in America, you're not supposed to drink on the streets, and you got to be 21 to drink. Maybe a few places uh, like New Orleans has some, some. You know, the French Quarter has some areas where there's no cars and there's walking streets, and you can walk and drink there. And there's a few oh. towns. There's like a small city in Maryland called Cambridge. It's on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay. They have a street that they close off and you can drink out of the street. But it's not like a normal thing you find, you know, whereas Taiwan, it's very relaxed. And I guess people don't get too carried away where they, they need to make it illegal to drink on the street. I think that's probably what happened there. <laughs> there is still a little bit of social taboo around drinking, I feel. But it's become enough culturally accepted that nobody really wants to talk or do anything about that so i think it still makes that's why i think the whole system survives even here but but also just the people and the way you're perceived and stuff is also like quite different because i was in uae and i think the moment you step into that country or anything of that sort you want to do in that country you know if you're an expat you know you're always going to be second grade citizen you will never be you will never be an Emirati, and they will rub that in your face. That is not something that I'll come across in Taiwan. They are more welcoming. They are more uh, open with you and talk to you, and people from all castes and all stages of life find it comfortable to interact, right? So, like, for example, I was in Dubai, and I was in a restaurant, and uh, like I was with my wife at that point, <clears throat> and they said, oh, if you're with your wife, then you can eat here. You can go to that place, which is like slightly nicer, which is the same restaurant who has a different outlet for family and uh, and and non-brown people, basically. <laughs> so I had with me an American uh, colleague and my wife. So we got sent to the nicer place where we sat down, we ate our meal. And I was just standing outside, just waiting for the bill. And then the car pulls up and I was like, oh, okay, there's somebody going. So I was just being polite and opened up the door. And the lady gets out, smiles at me, and then looks to the right. And there's like the waiter opening up a second door and that's when I see the number plate, which is a three-digit number plate, and I'm like, ah, this is the royal family. I guess that obviously they have a separate room for them. So you always know that you're never going to be the same uh, level. You'll never be treated the same. You can't even buy stuff. So that's why I think I am I, I, also gravitating towards Taiwan a little bit more in terms of infrastructure, in terms of the way people talk to you, and the fact that you can buy a beer at 7-Eleven at pretty much any point of the hour and walk out of it. Sorry, I, I am, I'm having a severe allergy attack. You can see me blowing my nose and I'm sneezing here. With I got the mute on, you know, for everybody's consideration. But yeah, there's really bad allergies in, in Texas for some people, including me. And they went away. We had our whole Texas freeze here. So like the allergies totally disappeared when everything was covered in snow. And now they're back and it's killing me. I'm trying to drink them away. Like the, the spring, I got a giant, uh, giant bottle of sake here. It's a $15 giant bottle of sake, yeah. Oh, wow. I am jealous. I'm having coffee because it's afternoon and it's just reasonable to have coffee. What brand is that? It's Mr. Brown. 
So just for the record, Mr. Brown also owns one of the biggest uh, whiskey distilleries in Taiwan. Uh, I think they're like 80 years old. Uh, and then the Kavalad whiskey comes out of them. And then they started 40 years ago, they started making coffee and they have the biggest coffee barons in this country as well. Such a so interesting they're coffee. like an, an Irish coffee company. It's like whiskey, coffee, maybe put them together. You can. Uh, you can, like in their stores where they sell coffee, like not, not like 7-Eleven where you can buy it too. But if you go to their Mr. Brown stores, there you can get like a double shot of coffee with a double shot of whiskey. It's nice. I've had that once before as a pick me up. So I asked you if there are a bunch of Indians in Taiwan, and I know the ones in the 90s, because a lot of them who lived there, these families that were there, and they were there in Taiwan for a long time. Their kids grew up there. Their kids often end up working there. But a lot of them moved mm. to Guangzhou in the mainland, in mainland China. Oh. So quite a few people from South Asia and Africa, for that matter, in that, in that part of China. Have you been over there before? Never, actually. I've never been to China at all like even when you guys uh were coming on board i never came there to like invite you or anything i have no idea why but then i just never felt like i needed to be in china for some reason <laughs> this giant country it's right there right next to you you can just hop on an airplane <laughs> one hour 45 minutes yeah you could go to shaman you know you could you could check out uh the University of Shaman. I don't know. I don't know what else to check out in Shaman. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure they have much better beaches in Taiwan than they do in Shaman. Probably, but like usually, I don't know why. I just never had the urge or the inclination of oh, I need to go see China. Like I've seen, I've like usually I, I've seen stuff on like traveling shows or movies and channels. I'm like ah, like I, I was in Japan. I'm like yeah, I'm gonna live in the middle of Shinjuku. Like, that's the decision I made. Like, I know it's tiny cramped rooms. I know it's super expensive. And I was like, there's an aspiration to go there, right? Because it seems nice. That's not something, I don't know. I've seen nice things about China, but I never wanted to go there. I have no idea why. 45 well, there, minutes away. No. There's a bit of a conflict going on, right? Between China and India, nationally border yeah on the border what's going on or, or if you're not comfortable talking about this we can also move on we don't need to talk about this. I, I don't i don't mind i, I yeah. won't go into the political aspect of it that's mm -hmm. completely different i will probably look at the facts as they are um i didn't uh, i wouldn't call myself an expert on the subject but it's like a skirmish which has been going on for like years and years like even during the time of independence like 1947 like this is like such a long time ago uh even then they had like border disputes saying okay you're here but you're actually here uh there's different claims from both sides uh, as to what part they occupy so there's an actual international boundary which is like slightly bigger and then there is like a line of control which is more like a trend so they have like big halves which is shaved off Right, so that's where people have like a lot of conflict. And just for the record, there's also uh, India-China border is a is is almost like a no weapons zone. People are not allowed to carry weapons because the tensions are that high. So if there's a very high chance. So when the skirmish happened, they were actually beating each other with like sticks and throwing rocks at each other. Was very medieval. So, so it's like a it's a barroom brawl. So the both both sides both militaries are agreeing. Oh yeah, we're not gonna bring our guns here, but we're doesn't mean we're not gonna fight, right, guys? 
Let's duke it out. Uh, food fight. Like <laughs> literally, right? Like and then like beating each other up, and then uh, also there's like a strategic place in, in India's border called the Chicken's Head, right? So there's like India, 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 and then it like becomes smaller here at one point where there's Bangladesh on bottom and there's China on top. So if we just pinch this part off, then you're sort of breaking off east of India away. So that's called the Chicken's Neck, and that's where a lot of these skirmishes are happening because the incursions are trying to just push in a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit at a time at a point where uh, that border doesn't exist anymore. So all of these things are like uh, leading to tensions between uh, the two countries, which led to India canceling uh, pretty much all uh, 4G, 5G infrastructure projects going out to China, uh, canceled railroads. So pretty much anything that China was involved in, uh, including TikTok and a lot of other apps that came out like there was like a massive massive undertaking of anti-china semitism in india which for good or bad helped india as well because then homegrown apps were able to come in step in and take that place homegrown companies were able to fill uh, fill that void which was left uh, now they have better relationship with uh, europe because a lot of tech is coming from there so uh, one person's loss is another person's gain, but then not at what cost is what becomes important. Like, are you losing your neighbor? Is this a war? Is you, are you ready to rage? I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's, it's just a bit it's, scary being that close. It's almost as if they do the same thing China does, where they block the outside app or software company, and then it gives their own market a chance, you know, to, to, to have, provide an alternative, you know? So it's a pr- protectionist, you know. So China, China's been doing this, you know, since since the internet, you know, had video, you know. So True. yeah. So True. China and India, and I, I find that incredible that they they're reasonable enough to not bring arms to the these regions, these conflicted regions, but they still have brawls, they still have fights. It's like it's almost like they should just do a sport and compete there. You know, just have like a real <laughs> gentlemanly game. Like they could, you know, maybe one year India can choose. Oh, let's do cricket. Yeah, we love cricket. And then you know, the next year China's like basketball. Let's do basketball. We love that. You know, just figure out. That's why we have Olympics. Like everything, let's just figure out. Let's find out. Let's see who's the best. India still sends a big consignment, but I think the the tensions also are more deep rooted in the territory because we've had like quite a few wars with China as well back in the his back in our history. And then the propaganda machine uses that factor to create hatred uh, for, I wouldn't say hatred, uh, I wouldn't even go that far, but this is going to political territory and that's why I'm not like very familiar uh, or very uh, big fan of that whole tactic. And, uh, yeah, that's a very dark subject for me. <laughs> okay, I, wouldn't, yeah, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't mess with that. Fair enough. Yeah, and it's, it's a very, very, very old border too, like very old civilizations, you know, like... Uh... Yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of stuff crossed that border. I mean, we had Buddhism cross that border a long, long time ago. We had spicy food uh, that like yeah. colonial guys brought to India. Like a lot of people look at food and they think like, oh, this is what my culture has always eaten. You know, like I'm Italian. I always ate the tomatoes. Yeah. And then and then tomatoes yeah. actually came from North America. Right. So what were they eating before the tomatoes <laughs> came over? So you got to wonder what the hell were these guys eating before they had tomatoes? And you can look at China, you look at Sichuan province, they're like, they love their chili peppers. Those didn't come from China. Those came from the yeah. Americas too. So some European guys brought those from America. They took them there. They took them from there. They came over, they took those. 
They bring them to the colonies in, in Asia. They bring them to India. They bring them up to China from there. And then you got spicy food in, in 2021 in, in Sichuan now, you know? So it's, yeah. it's pretty incredible. India is famous for its silk, which we weren't, uh, we didn't know what to, what it was until uh, it crossed over borders from China. And then China also got like a bunch of stuff from India, which he didn't know existed uh, because nobody had that uh, access. And like things like, things like coffee, like India is famous for coffee. A lot of coffee in the world is made in India, but one guy stole coffee beans from Africa and sailed on a boat to get to South India and then planted it there. Otherwise, there would be no coffee for, for anybody in India. But we swear by our coffee like it's nobody's business. It's, yeah, it's, it's silly it's, how that works. It's so crazy how there's all these things that seem so well established and ingrained, you know, but they're maybe only a few hundred years old. It's not that it's not that long ago people have been doing this. Like I'm reading this book about Henry Ford building some uh, like rubber plantation in in the Amazon rainforest because he wanted to have enough rubber so he had tires for his cars you know so he's trying to pump these cars out of factories he needs rubber to be cheap and he's depending on you know the colonies to give him rubber uh so like you know the British colonies in Asia and, and so on so what happened was these British colonial guys they they wanted to get an in and uh Portugal I guess is is colonizing Brazil at the time they have a bunch of rubber trees there so then this, this British dude kind of sneaks some seeds out and he brings these rubber trees to the, to the, the, the kingdom or the crown, you know, the, the British, uh, the head of the, head of the whatever side of the colonies that are doing this. I'm no historian, obviously, but they bring them, they end up bringing them over to Asia and we got a huge rubber industry in Southeast Asia, even today, you know, Thailand and, um, you know, and back in those days, this is like the late 1800s. This is what made Singapore a huge port because they were exporting rubber. Because, yeah, it's crazy. Like, this, this is stuff you just don't really think about every day. Like, the world is the way it is today because there was all this transaction, a lot of... I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of bad stuff happened, obviously, but there was a lot of these transactions going on that that really changed the face of the world. Correct, and and it's so surprising because rubber was not uh, rubber needs a lot. It's it's not very commercially viable, uh, especially when you're competing with like freaking Amazon's. They have acres of land. That's not that much land is not something that is readily available in India. Like for example, right. But the blight, there's the rubber blight, which hits. And once it hits, it just wipes out hundreds of thousands of acres. So right now, there's no rubber, uh, as far as I know, and as far as the documentary I watched says, in Central America, because they got wiped out by the blight, because each rubber tree is almost very similar genetically. It's indifferentiable. So, so if it hits a... one, all of it gets wiped out. Okay, right? so... so that's the only reason why rubber became commercially viable uh, in Asia, because the prices went up, and they said, "Okay, now we don't mind planting them." Basically, so it's it's really silly. Like even if 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 it had never gotten wiped out, I don't think Asia would have such a big rubber industry. It just yeah, wouldn't. it's pretty wild. And we're, you were saying it got wiped out. Was that by like a parasite? Yeah, it's yeah. called the rubber blight. Uh, I don't remember what the exact term is, but like most of my wife's side, they own. Um, uh, acres of land in which they have rubber trees there is like a seven year lock-in period where they let the tree grow and then and then you really start making money basically yeah it's because you you like harvest the sap right or there's like liquid yeah. that comes out of the tree and then you process that into rubber it's crazy this stuff comes from a tree 
and and then it runs pretty much everything that you can like think about has moving things in it like from cars yeah. to planes to ships to anything it's just silly how much the world is dependent on rubber and how less people are uh, anyway that's like a different uh, documentary they've already made that one we don't have to <laughs> talk about that on this well it's interesting you know just talk about what's <laughs> What's interesting, you know, came up and yeah. since we're talking about all this, these these kind of historical transactions, that kind of takes us full circle back to China with with tea, Ch- China developing tea, and then you know nowadays India is famous for tea. I mean, obviously China is still famous for tea, but India wasn't famous for tea a thousand years ago, whereas China might have been, British. you know. It was the British who said that, ah, we are not able to penetrate China, but then, hey, like, India has similar mountains and same landscape, so just let's just plant some tea there. So up north, we have, like, a bunch of northeast India, which is, like, tea country. Like, I was there, I do, uh, and I think we'll probably touch up on the subject later on, maybe not. I, I ride my motorcycle uh, a lot, and usually I do it solo. I don't uh, take company or passengers. It's just me on a motorcycle. And then I was going by this... Uh, tea plantation in and i know it might seem silly to you because i'm sure in the u.s you're like mega corporations mega farms and stuff like it's a huge but then this tea plantation was 18 kilometers long and i kept going on that road and it was just like tea plantation tea plantation owned by a british guy sitting in london somewhere who has a 15 kilometer by whatever how i don't know how deep it was like that many kilometer tea plantation sitting out of India. Was this like the the PG Tips farm or like the Yorkshire Tea Farm or something like that? Or I, you have I have no idea because th- that plantation is so big. They have a small town inside that plantation for the people who work in the plantation, so they don't ever have to leave out. I mean, they built a town with like a hospital and a school and like grocery stores and stuff. It's that labor intensive, right? Like, because you have to like pluck, there's no other way. Yeah, it's like picking leaves off a bush on a mountain. It's just, it's a lot, you know, at a very specific time. And this whole region, the, the whole border of India and China, it's very mountainous. I mean, these are the Himalayas. Yeah, it's, it's not mm-hmm. the most accessible territory, right? Uh, the only reason I think they, they, these all of these border cities exist is only because of the army and, and the outpost that they've created, right? So everywhere I traveled uh, in the seven, so we call it the seven sisters, the seven states on northeast part of India. Uh, everywhere I've traveled, it's all um, built and maintained by the army. Uh, it's called the border road organizations and they've built roads into like insane places. Like at one point I went through 14 or 15 tunnels carved into rock but then they were all c sections it's not just like c c c c c right like because it's like one space open but they had to like carve it out in the middle and you're driving through these roads and i've seen some of these fine examples in china's roads and they're like famous there because it's the same degree of skill required to make it in india as well so you have this beautiful tarmac one single laid road leading all the way up to and this is where it gets very interesting. It leads all the way up to the border. And on the other side of the border, in China side, you see a four-lane highway leading up to the border. And you have a single-lane <laughs> single tarmac, and I'm like, ah, shit, they can mobilize better already. Right? So that's yeah. the infrastructure difference you see sometimes, because the border is simply huge. It's huge. Because China just has to worry sometimes mostly about India and some parts of uh, North. 
but India also has like Bangal situation, then you have Myanmar, and then you have that's why we have Nepal and Bhutan as like sort of the buffer states between uh, between India and China to sort of uh, give us that little bit of comfort. But you can really see the culture change from as you go from south of India to north of India to east. It's more matriarchal. Uh, women are women wear the pants, they do all the hard work, they take care of the family, decisions made by them, men are considered people who are, who give you a baby and then go to a bar and drink every day. It's basically what I saw like in the mountains. It was, it was surprisingly yeah. eye-opening. I've heard a lot of that in Tibet too, like that there's, there's some similar behavior, you know. Yeah, it's very yeah, I've, I've heard, there's a lot of the, the minority groups in China that have these matriarchal societies that are kind of like that. And then it's it, it's usually what the guys do is they're just like kind of chilling and getting messed up and just, you know, just vibing <laughs> together, you know, and yeah. I guess it works. They're just hustling for a living and stuff like that, whereas more stable and hardworking jobs are like management and stuff. But that also what makes makes it a pleasure to walk through because all of these inns and the restaurants and hotels and everything is run by women. So when you go in, you sit down, you just really feel that they want you to be there. They want you to eat the food. They're not here for the money. It's a service that they're offering. And it's just yeah. like a beautiful place to go. And you're like, God, these these bathrooms are just so much more clean than normal. Like, what is what is going on? <laughs> don't, don't even go there on the bathroom. <laughs> this is one time it was like a very, very silly story. So I go up to the mountains and I, it's like right up. So this village is called Komik Village. And it's like arguably what, it, it's either that or Leh are fighting for the highest village in the world, right? So both of them are like, ah, no, I'm high. So I went up Komik. Now, the speciality of this city, of this town is it used to be the river, uh, the seabed before. And then the tectonic plates have pushed it and made it up into a mountain, right? So you find fossils up there. Uh, uh, the, the water is like a little, little effy, but I think just the city. If you look at it, I think that'll be uh, that'll be. It's called yeah. Let Comic, me pull that K-O-M-I-C. up. How do you spell yeah. this again? K O M I C. Comic. Comic. City. Yeah, India. Yeah. Oh, co- yeah. Comic. That's the one. All right. So that's the valley that I was looking at. Yeah. This, might, this makes more sense. That's the valley I'm looking at. And that used to be at one point, uh, see, it says right there, the highest village in the world connected with the most motorable road. I mean, they have different claims. I don't know which one's right. It's like 114 people live there and you actually get like fossils in the ground. That's awesome. And and you ride up there, there's like one little uh, hotel and I go there and I sit down, I eat a bunch of food and this is like at noon or something and I'm like, I have to go to the restroom and I go to the restroom and I'm like, business and then I see this pipe and this pipe is black and I'm like, oh, okay, maybe nobody cleans this pipe ever and then there's a lighter there and I'm like, oh, okay, this guy's smoking the bathroom too so I just take off my cigarette, I light one up I'm just sitting down and then I open the tap to like put the water out and there's no water coming and the tap's like frozen solid. And then it all suddenly makes sense. The lighter, the black pipe. And then I start heating up the pipe with the lighter <laughs> to like make that water, which is frozen in the pipe. And then water just suddenly rushes through. And you're like, oh, now I see it. And then I have to wipe my ass with like frozen water. <laughs> it's, it's a very manual system it's, there. It's just 
and just manually unfreeze yeah. the pipe. Yeah, because yeah, because he said this this place is only open in summer, and then winter they just shut it down, and they put like literally they put they covered with hay and a tarpaulin, and they just leave. And they come back the next year and just open the tarpaulin and just excavate the whole thing out of there again. And just use this hotel. It's very interesting. Well, yeah. yeah. So uh, when you were when you were talking about the tea, you brought up your your motorcycle hobby lifestyle you could say let's let's yeah. get into that though it's that's a nice segue to take since, since this is why you were in these places right you're on motorcycle trips yeah it was so silly because i i think i started riding a motorcycle not a motorcycle i started riding scooters when i was like maybe 12 years old i guess and then it was my mom's scooter it was like 60 cc whatever it got the job done i had deals i used to go have tea and coffee and stuff like that when i was 12 it was nice it was cool and then since then i only had scooters until i was like maybe 18 or 19 or 20 22 until that it was just mostly scooter 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 and then i had a big accident i was going it was raining and i was going up a small hill uh, to get to work and then i can see it's wet i go up and then i realized somebody's had a fall it's all oil I slipped and I fell. I go over the hill and see like 15 scooters all splattered around the other side because everybody's gone up and then flipped that out and just like splatter. So uh, that's Jeez. when I lost my scooter. <laughs> I didn't lose my scooter, but I didn't have access to it for like a couple of weeks because of major damage. And I borrowed my brother's motorcycle. That was my first motorcycle of my life. Like I had learned how to ride it, but I never had one. So I used this for like two or three weeks. I really loved it. And it sort of like, it just came to me. I was like, yeah, it was natural. In two weeks, you're able to ride it very, very confidently. So that's when I said, huh, I've read about these people doing mountain trips in the Himalayas. I want to do that. And I had a friend uh, who quit job to go back to his, uh, so we were all in the BPO together. So he went back to his hometown to start a motorcycle uh, rental company. So I was like, can I rent one? He's like, yeah, I'll give you a discount for you. I'm like, sure, that's a good. And that's how it started with a discount. He's like, I'll give you half price. I'm like, that sounds like a good deal. And I went there, I took, uh, I, I flew to Delhi and then I took an overnight bus into Manali. And in Manali, I went to his house. I stayed there for like a day, uh, picked up uh, the motorcycle, rode around the town. And then the next day I started riding towards the mountains. It was insane experience because this is my first ride of my life uh, i've been riding motorcycles for three years of three months at the point and then i'm riding up the mountain and then there's like a big queue and i look at the the kilometer it says 13 kilometers to the pass and then the pass it's it's, it's the highest uh, motorable pass in the world and this is just like the guy who's just picked up his motorcycle i'm doing stuff like this which is like incredibly insane for me and then there has been a landslide and the pass was closed and i'm like this is not even day one this is hour one of my motorcycling exp expedition and i can't already go forward so i quickly pull up my google maps i'm like i can go around the mountain from the south okay that sounds that sounds fun i just put it on and this is why i like doing solo ones i can do that decision i turn my motorcycle and this all of this took like four minutes of decision i turned my motorcycle and i just started going down south went around the mountain down like below in places that i would have never gone to um, totally unmarked, unplanned, just staying wherever you are. Uh, that really opened up, like because the route that I was trying to do was very, very commercial. This was un, this was like a very colloquial, uh, regional route. It was so much, so much fun. And since then, I've 
I keep trying to go back and do that more and more. And then that's where my whole thing about motorcycles began. I picked up, uh, I, I had a couple of Yamahas at one point. I had a KTM and I had like 170cc scooter. I had like a bunch of vehicles at home. And now in uh, Taiwan, I just ride a Ninja, which is nice. Himalaya, you should put, yeah. yeah that sorry, is just... the one that I wrote, the Himalayan from uh, Royal Enfield. Wait, this is, actual, this is actual brand name? I just wanted to be like, motorcycling in the Himalayas, but this, this is the actual brand. This is the actual, so this is the Royal Enfield is the company, uh, which is a British company which makes motorcycles in India. And that's the motorcycle I used for my latest expedition. I did 2,200 kilometers over 10 days. Uh, covering, I went from uh, China to Bhutan to Bangladesh. All of these are borders. Only Bhutan I got into, but all of the other ones were just touching the borders and coming back. It was like, a, this is like a seriously good motorcycle if you're going up the mountains. But if you really want to look at it, you should put uh, Le Motorcycle, L-E-H. L-E-H. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm about to again. Oh. Ah! Sorry, that's that's yeah, the, the anybody the wearing headphones. Option. I apologize. That's okay. The fourth option down, yeah. Lay motorcycle tour, yeah. First one. This is basically, basically, most of these things that you see here are things that I've done in different weather conditions. Yeah, on I different love motorcycles. How, I love how you're like, yeah, I was motorcycling for about three months, so I decided to just. Hit the Himalayas, you know, the tallest mountain range in the world. Some of those dangerous roads. But that's <laughs> also the same. We're saying that I've been riding since I was 12, right? So yeah. at that point, I've already been on two wheels for 10 years. It's just the motorcycle gearing systems and stuff that I picked up. And then immediately, it was, it's just confidence that you have. Like sometimes it just sort of, it just makes sense. This is, this was like one of the brilliant most beautiful things that if you if you really if you know how to ride a motorcycle you should do this i would highly recommend this and then you know this since you're by yourself and if you're doing this for you know a number of weeks or something are you feeling mm -hmm. like conan the barbarian you just are you like kicking in doors and coming into some old tavern in the mountains and grabbing some grog from from the bar <laughs> it does it does make you a little bit less civilized uh, but in a good way, it makes you more, more primitive. So you're able to like uh, survive on lesser things. You don't need luxury too much anymore. You're like, hey, like, like the most luxurious thing I wanted was a Western Camorra so that my knees don't lock up when I'm sitting down in the cold and I just can't, like I need support afterwards to get up because it gets really cold in the mornings. But so you you just wanted like a heated Japanese toilet seat just to keep you comfortable. No, not a big, just like one which I don't have to like squat down on. <laughs> so I don't have trouble getting up after. Should I put that into Google Image Search? Indian squat toilet? No. Should I? Should I do that? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. I don't think that's like a very good idea to do that. All right, all right. Just checking. Okay. Yeah. So but, we did yeah. this in the, in the, in, this is like the Northern Mountains, right? So this is like, if you look at India map, it's like, like, the tippy top north of India. And then the ones I really enjoyed is like towards the, yeah. So if you click on, yeah, that one, anyone. 
I got a a, a map from oh, the 1980s. Go <laughs> oh yeah, oh, this is the, <laughs> the sponsored product maps. I want to get a really dated one. No, no, no. Yeah, that okay, one. Let's the go, the let's one go with second row. No, just go back. I think that will also prove the the whole LOC this, point. This one right here. The second, the one below. One it's below. It's out of the preview. Ah, that one. Yes. All right. So that's basically you see the stark contrast on the left side map and the right side map uh, of that's where cool. the top of India looks like. Trying to zoom in and it just Google's making it smaller. What the hell? Yeah. It. Yeah. Google. Uh, the the images are like a little weird. So that's like the whole line of control. You see that China occupied India on top, and then Pakistan occupied LOC is the line of. So that's like the conflicted area. So Leh is the one you see right there. That's right Leh. There. That's one of the highest roads in the world. Now, the other city that you looked at, which is called Komek, is towards the right side. So if you go scroll to the right a little bit, more, more, yeah. Uh, no, the comics also somewhere there, but the other one I told you, which I did was um, next to Bhutan, the whole region there, Dibrugar, Kohima, Silchar, all of that region is the, the second trip, a third trip I did there. Yeah, that one. So it's the same mountain range, which comes all the way from up north of uh, the Himalayas, all the way till down south. So I did... I've done Leh, I've done Nepal, and then like mostly most of that territory, it's it's beautiful. So yeah. this this I'm area, like this. this is definitely something I don't think about a lot. Is this little territory right here? There's a, a patch of India between Nepal, Bhutan, and Bangladesh, and that's very mountainous. Yeah. So is there? That's the chicken snack. I was talking. Oh, about that's the chicken there. snack. Okay. So is there? Is, the how tight? How tight is the border control there? Uh, actually, we have not much because Bhutan and Nepal gives you a huge buffer and keeping them independent uh, with India, the relationships are quite nice. So that sort of gives you a little bit of uh, thing. But nobody really drives there. Like usually people fly over because it's, it's just a pain <laughs> and it's cheap. Flying in India is so cheap. Like I can go from, from uh, Bangalore down south to all the way to like the, the northeast, whatever you look at. Uh, Itanagar or Deshpur that you see there, I probably will spend 50, 70 bucks US just flying there. It's nothing. So you'd rather, I'd rather fly than actually take the car. Right? Yeah. I, I, I've been to India once and I went for work for, uh, for a Chinese client. And I was actually talking about my wife. I was telling her about this story today. We were driving somewhere and we were just talking. So I, I went to do a training mission for a, a Chinese smartphone company's uh, like mar various marketing departments in, in some, hmm. you know, in India, in, in Kenya, and Nigeria. First stop was India. No, there's supposed to be this like very well experienced traveler from the, the client side coming with me. He was almost going to be like my handler, you know, and he gets okay. really sick the day before the trip. So they they booked this other guy to go with me who's never left China before in his life. He's, he's a Chinese dude who's never left China. He's he's also an extremely timid person, like like unusually timid. Wow! And uh, he he was sent to go with me as my guide, and and of, of course I ended up being his guide. You know, like I was I was taking I was holding his hand, you know, bringing him around. <laughs> like literally, which city were you in? We we were in New Delhi, and uh, we we had some 
we were at a nice hotel and, and I we had some nice food at the hotel and it was really delicious Indian food, like really rich. Like I felt mm. uncomfortable afterwards. It was so rich and he was just like, yeah. I think Chinese food's better. And it was just like, I was like, come on, man. You, you just left China for the first time. Just chill out. Just enjoy the food. Just You don't need to compare it. It's different. And uh, yeah. so that, that was interesting. But we took a domestic flight. We took Because we, we were flying to Kenya next after after Delhi. So we flew from uh, Delhi to, Bom- to, I was about to say Bombay, but Mumbai. Mumbai, right? yeah. Mumbai, Mumbai. yes. So, <laughs> so we had to connect in Mumbai. So he, he wasn't aware that if you're on a connecting flight that's going to go international you can just get off the plane and get on the next plane you don't need to leave the terminal so he thought you had to leave the terminal go to baggage claim and then go back in he wasn't aware so he did and he was like calling me he's like where are you i'm waiting for you i'm about to go through security i'm like why are you going through security we just we just we're just transferring here you know and then uh he's like oh i left so I mean, this is just a good lesson. Like, well, if, if you're gonna send a, a handler on an international trip, like, definitely take a guy who's like been on an international trip before. You know that. that and be... Delhi to Mumbai, <laughs> that's a busy route, and then Mumbai airport's a mess. It's like a massive, massive, super busy airport. Poor guy. Yeah, yeah, I got I got some good souvenirs in that airport. That Mumbai airport, I got some great souvenirs for my son. There was a lot of shopping oh. there. Yeah. And uh, the flight yeah, to Kenya after that, that, oh. was, that was interesting. And then I'd, I'd say like East Africa, there's there's a lot of influence there from South Asia in, in the Middle East. You know, it, it, a lot of Indians too, I've heard. Very weird. Yeah, yeah. Especially there was Kenya. definitely like a lot of, you could say, brown people there in Kenya. Like uh, a lot of people that looked either Arab or Indian or from Pakistan or something, you know. Hmm. I've heard interesting things for that region. Yeah, but we've talked about your Kenyan adventures a bit also. Uh, but in terms of food uh, from India and Kenya, how did you feel? Like, do you see any similarities there? Yeah, there, there was a lot of curry or curry-like food. You know, there was a lot of this kind of stuff. But even in, I'd say even in West Africa, you get curry-ish food. There's a lot of like slow-cooked stews and, and really rich broths or or like gravies you know this kind of stuff that you get that in india and i think you get that in a lot of parts of africa too yeah because i i was looking at some of the exports of india back in the days like i like i was reading and this is like mythological even right so i was like reading greek and indian mythology and then there was like a, an account in greek which said the white horse with the plate on its uh, the golden plate on its forehead it said a uh, yield or uh, yield or be wiped out or something along those lines, right? Uh, and this was like an Indian mythology. There was like a, a, a myth where there's like an Indian king consolidated his kingdom and he travels all the way across through to Europe conquering uh, all of these places. So at one point, Indian empire was from Vietnam till Greece. And that's where all of that Indian influence sort of flows in, right? So Middle East got a lot of these spices that India had and the food culture that came through. Uh, Vietnam got all their Buddha statues and stuff like that's where it comes from. Thailand got its uh, Brahma temples and stuff like that. So uh, that's where that influence flows down into uh, Africa. And that's when I also realized I was in the I was in the US and I was like, I want to eat Indian food. I want to eat Indian food because it had been like almost two, 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 three weeks and I can't cook. And that's my bane. I always cook. 
So I actually ended up going to an Ethiopia place and had like some good Indian-esque stews and food and dosas and stuff like that. It's so surprising that you know, substitute for Indian food is Ethiopian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's the a lot of the African diaspora too, like in Jamaica, some of the the food there you could say has some similarities. Like jerk chicken, I think, has some very curry like yeah. aspects, you know. And then I you know, I find a lot of Caribbean people are shopping in some of the Asian supermarkets, you know, to buy some ingredients for some of the, some of the dishes that they that they want to cook at home. You know, there's a lot of these just generally people from overseas shopping in the same places just to get like those special ingredients. You know, correct. And that's a very surprising thing you brought up also because in 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 Taiwan here we have Indian store, but like as most Indian things around the world, they're all supremely overpriced, including labor. So. The hack is to go to an Indonesian store and buy goods from there because they're not overpriced. They're priced a little reasonably cheaper, but they're very, 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 very similar, like 95% similar to what you want. Yeah, like, okay, I'm paying a quarter of the price for something which is 95% the same. Seems like a very reasonable trade-off to me. Yeah, Surprising hacks that we come up with. So I'm, I'm living on the south side of Austin right now, and there's not that many Asian supermarkets. There is an Indian supermarket not far from where I'm staying. So we go there, and we get some, some good stuff there. And then there's like a Filipino little tiny shop, you know, like little little like studio apartment style space, you know. But North Austin's where most of the Asians are, so you get these giant Asian supermarkets. But we're kind of down here in the south, so we, we, do, get, we do get our fair amount of Indian goods, and it's, it's quite nice, you know. A lot of frozen stuff. Get some paneer poppers. Do you, you know what that? I mean, it's not a traditional Indian thing, but you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about exactly, because yeah. like once you're an expert, you're like, this is how I consume paneer. I eat in poppers at this point. <laughs> yeah, so paneer is a type of cheese from India, yeah, and uh, and a popper is like a jalapeno popper. So it's like a it's like an Indian jalapeno popper, but it's an Indian cheese, and it's got some different kind of spices in it, and. Quite good. Yeah, you shouldn't expect it to be uh, like the cheese cheese traditionally, but paneer is like yeah, yeah. The, I think the right side image does like yeah, the most right justice to it. Yeah, because that's like a square piece of paneer stuffed with uh, sorry uh, stuffed into like a a ball of whatever. flour. Yeah, deep spices. batter dough, whatever it is. Yeah, basically. But the way we eat paneer is just by itself, and it's very like flash cooked very quickly because uh, it's just like hunkered. It just takes like, and it's surprising. It just takes like two hours to make. It's not even that hard to make paneer. Yeah, it's just like you boil milk and you put lime in it, and then voila, two hours later you just strain it out and you have paneer. Yeah, it's a, it's I a mean, good cheese. It, yeah. It's quite similar to uh, the part of China called Yunnan. They have cheese, and I'm, I'm sure they got it from India. I mean, like back in the day, but it's a very similar Hong texture. Kong. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I think uh, that's something which is surprising also in Taiwan is because I think so far I've been managed. I've managed to count close to thirty Indian restaurants in Taipei, which I think is an obnoxiously high number for a city this small. But everybody's 30. doing good business. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, I don't know if there's that many in in Austin. There could be. I went to an Indian food truck yesterday, so we even had the food trucks that are in here. That was, it was a. I mean, in, Indian yeah. Nepalese food truck. So it was. It was definitely like a Nepalese dude. Did you eat momos 
like Indian dumplings. Dude, I got the most. No, they they were sold out of those. They were sold out of those. But those they just uh, kind of look like the Chinese dumplings, but they're they're Indian, yeah. They're Indian so much. I mean, I prefer those because like I grew up with dumplings. And they were all Nepalese. Momo, yeah. What, what? what is this? Mo- mom's? This is your search history. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is mom. This is very wholesome. This is mom's. Momo's. Uh, you should put Tibet, yeah. All right, there we yeah. go. Yeah. This, this right. works. Yeah. Him- Himalayan way. dumplings. Maybe we could call them. Yes. <clears throat> this is what I survive on on all my journeys. Like when I go up north, north India on my motorcycle trips, right? These are 20 bucks, which is about 75 cents a plate you uh, you usually get about six in a plate for less than a dollar which fills your stomach up and you keep moving. and serve hot piping when, and and the chutney is just chili just like ground chili so that sounds good and they're really filling yeah, yeah. So you, you eat six and you're full so, i mean depends depends like depends on uh different places usually i go through two plates i don't need six now <laughs> i'm a big boy and plus also the the cold really increases the amount of food that you take it's like insane i used to eat i used to double sometimes how much i used to eat uh, normally from down south yeah and there's when you're cold there's nothing like a hot steaming dumpling it's it's really nice and comforting, spicy dumpling you know? which makes you sweat a little bit like yeah. that yeah so this one then you would have had uh nepali food is like they it's, it's just like it's mostly like southern china food i would say uh they have like watery noodles called tukpa 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 or something yeah and then <laughs> these are things you should just tell him and then he'll be very impressed and give you a free portion of dumplings. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was in downtown yeah. Austin and I was like, oh, while I'm here, I may as well get some food truck food. You know, there's all the food trucks everywhere down here. And so I got, mm-hmm. yeah, I got some like halal shawarma in one truck. And then next to that, there's the Indian to the Indian uh, Nepalese place. So I got, uh, I got the most basic thing ever, the chicken tikka masala which it isn't even from india right it's, it's like kebab, from, basically yeah sometimes it's like in a tandoor. yeah sorry is it, it people always tell me that that dish is from england chicken tikka masala i mean indians yeah. in england obviously it's like to be honest i've eaten some really good indian food uh, sometimes surprisingly good indian food like i had like a really good like, and it's the most basic bitch of things, like chutney, right? It's like the most basic thing of uh, things that you eat with. But I had probably one of the best chutneys of my life in like San Francisco. It's so it's so weird because you travel halfway out of the world and you think that you know your chutneys and then this guy serves you something. I'm like, what am I eating? And then the bill comes and you say, what am I paying? Now you realize why you're paying. <laughs> I, I think I paid $80 for a beer and Italy, which was an obnoxious amount of money to pay for food. Wait, did you say a beer and, and, and a bite of chutney? Not a bite of chutney and a plate of Italy. Italy is like steamed. It's, it's basically steamed rice. Uh, oh, okay. So okay. still something that shouldn't be that expensive. Yeah, it's like okay. usually <laughs> buy, you buy 10 Italy's for a dollar. And I had three of them for eighty. <laughs> it was it was silly, but it was nice. It's uh, it was surprisingly good. 
uh, food for somewhere outside India. But that's also something that uh, I enjoy being in Taiwan is because you have access to all these places, people respect you. And then every time I'm in a taxi cab or something, people look at me like, where are you from? I'm, like, I'm from India. Oh, you're smart people. I'm like, thank you, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> you must be a professor. They all think like you're an engineer, like turns out, whatever. Like, like yeah, engineer. But like, I don't tell them I'm marketing, but whatever. That sort of uh, will let them. Uh, well, you could be like, I'm a communications engineer, you know? <laughs> no, <laughs> just kind like of information scientist, get, get marketing a new name. Yeah, no, we already have enough stereotypes. I don't need to add to that. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, so, that's yeah. kind of funny, though, so, like, this, you know, you get treated differently everywhere. I think in mainland China, you would probably get a much different reaction. Like, people are not going to think you're uh, so academic or something like that. Like, uh, I'd say there's a lot of racism in mainland China towards Indians, like, definitely. Like, a lot of, like, very casual racism, I would say. What's the what's the image? I don't know, like... Well, there was know, this, there's, a, there's a, like? like, a term, like, a slur called Asan, and... I remember there, there's like a, a hot pot restaurant in downtown Shanghai that I used to go to. And there was like an Indian guy that would make like, a, he would make a roti, roti bread. Hmm. So it's a Chinese hot pot place, but there's an Indian dude making roti. And then like, I remember like this Chinese person I worked with was just like, Asan, Asan, like, like, you know, basically like calling him a slur for an Indian person to like to get his attention. It's, it's basically like saying... Like, like if he's a white guy, it's like, hey, cracker, get over here, come on, yeah, let me get some of that 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 Wonder Bread you got, you know. But it was it was it's, it was a roti like, bread. Assam is the district, right? So I think that's where a lot of people came out of. It's more like calling a white guy, hey, you Texan, come over, like generally. Come oh, that that that's, that's must be what it is, because I don't know what yeah. Asan. It's it's not like a it's a Chinese word, but it's like a sound. It's like a, definitely a foreign word that they're transliterating. But it must be the region right. of Assam, right? region of Assam, which is down south into there. And that's where a lot of people went out of because they all have very similar uh, uh, like uh, East Asian features, right? So they are, they also blend in a little bit more, right? But as soon as you speak to them, you know where they're, where they're from. But if you don't, they look East Asian. So that's why uh, I think they have that uh, infamacy around them a little bit. Yeah, I can relate to that. Gotcha. But, yeah, and then, but when I was in, I think uh, when we were in the US, depending on which city and what part and what car you're driving, people are giving you different vibes. So when I was driving my rental, I had a different vibe. When I was in Uber, I got a different vibe. So it's just basically people know that like, at least in the US, there's like a whole range of Indians everywhere. So they're, they're constantly trying to figure out where you fit. Wait, a different what? Wipe, you said? Different. No, a different car. Depends oh. on what car, what part of the, the the city you were in, and what car you were driving. I think that's oh, okay. a lot of. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah. It's just class class oriented, you know. Yeah, yeah. So they want to know where where you stand, uh, what you do. So based on what you drive, that's where. I mean, that's the that's the only information they have, to be honest. Yeah, I guess so. That's that's where they're getting it from. I guess we huh. could, we could jump straight into the the cliche topics is the caste system in India. That's a thing like in, in the diaspora in America, I don't really know much about it. Like I know there's a lot of Indians in Austin because there's a big tech industry here, you know, in California mm. as well. 
And uh, I was on Telegram the other day, and I, and I was I noticed there's a feature of like groups nearby, and you can see if there's group chats that are like nearby you GPS wise. And there was mm-hmm. one that was like Desi's in Austin, D E S I. What is what does yeah. that word mean? What is a Desi? I see that word all the time. I know it has something to do with Indian people, but I don't really know what it means. <laughs> I would not recommend typing that word in Google because there's multiple connotations to it. Uh, but a Desi is pers- basically an Indian person. That's like okay. That's like being an American, but like in an Indian. Desi is Desi is Des Desh is country. So Desi literally means countryman. Oh, so it's like. It's like saying, hey, my N-word, something like that. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, my country yeah, N-word in Austin, basically. Yeah. Not even that. It's, I think it's, it's a lot more specific. It's, it's, more, it's more like only Indians. You don't want anybody yeah, yeah, yeah. else. I don't want Sri Lanka, China, uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan. No, it's just the Indians. Just us, our little nation here or our large yes. nation here. It's just it's our people. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's yeah. okay. It's not South Asians. It's Indian nationals. Very specifically, Indian nationals only. Not okay. Pakistani. Not uh, not Sri Lanka. Not Nepali. No. It has to be Indian. And if I search it on Google, it would be similar to me searching it on Pornhub or something. Is that what you're in connotation? Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Right, gotcha. Yeah. Basically. I've seen. I've seen <laughs> I was doing a little research one night, and I I found I found that section of the internet, that corner of the internet. You know. <laughs> man this is all amateur home shot stuff yeah <laughs> oh yeah 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 a lot of it very rough a lot of it uh i wouldn't revisit but you know it yeah. is what it is it's new experience i mean that's that's how that industry is treated even though it was like back in the days it's still it was still the oldest profession whatever it was and in india it was legal also i think at one point they just decided uh it didn't it shouldn't exist and it just got completely wiped out this degenerate behavior we can't we can't let them, we can't let the children <laughs> so uh but if you're looking at caste system also right like even if you're if you're actually in india india it sort of is more prevalent because you're all indians around so how do you differentiate who's better than the other person so there's always this constant struggle of being better than somebody else so like we've been so we have an apartment building in india that uh, that uh, we were we built it and then we were selling all the houses from it and stuff like that and then this is one cast of people who are like coming in and interested and then they're like buying the houses it's like ah so I want some house on the top floor and um, uh, how much is it and stuff like that so we're talking negotiating prices and stuff like that and then uh, we tell the neighbors like ah oh, we're negotiating that he's like oh what's his uh, what's his name I tell him his name it's like he looks at the last name he's like I don't think you should give him the top floor I think you should give him the one below uh, I'm like no I can't say that he said he wanted to live here like, tell them my last name and tell them I live next to them and then I did that and then he said I don't mind the third floor now it's just like they automatically establish that they're like ranking order so now I know every floor and of that cast, there's one person or two two houses, two people living in every floor. And I know what their hierarchy is in their own cast. Like within that cast, there is subcast. It's so it is that it is that prevalence. So there's subcasts. There's there's like four main casts, right? There's like the Brahmins and, and the Brahmin, Shatya, Vaishya, Shudra. So but that's not even caste. That's more like 
you can say it as a cast, but it's more like the kind of trade that or the kind of job description that you had back in the days, right? Okay. But the cast itself is 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 different. So a Brahmin could be like, for example, depending on how many Vedas, Vedas like the scriptures, the Indians uh, historical scriptures, depending how much you're historically read, you were given that title of Divedi, Chaturvedi, which means two, three, four, how much have you mastered? Then that became the, the level on which you got judged at, right? Uh, we were farmers to begin with. Uh, like that's where our ancestral roots are. Uh, like my great, great, like three generations ago, my grandfather became, was an engineer. He built like a bridge and a dam. And then they moved out of that whole caste system into you never really more of a caste system, but you just move out of the profession into more of uh, uh, more commercial enterprises, like con- con- like you were in contracts and you were in the king's court. So which means you got like special preference and you were you could sort of circumvent a little bit of the hurdles that came as being a part of your caste, right? So we were uh, so all of those things still sort of exist uh, very much in India. The, the the last names mean something. Uh, but when I come here, I'm so happy that I just find people speaking my language, which is Kannada, which is like very, very old. Uh, it's, and very few people speak it. So I was like very surprised if I see somebody it's like, oh, you speak Kannada, that's so cool. And then I still keep speaking to them in English. I have no idea why. <laughs> why switch is the worst of that word? <laughs> that, that's the like this a point regional, more... regional language? Yeah. It's called Canada. It's like one of the, it's, it's, it fights for like, which is the second oldest modern language. Uh, so K-A-N-N-A-D-A. Okay. Oh, Indian map works. You should take the, uh, that one for kids. Second or third one. Yeah. It's more brightly colored. So, so I come from the state down south. Sorry, I didn't expect it to get all Pinterest on. It to be Pinterest. God, God yeah. damn it! Yeah. Oh, I, I gotta it. log in. Are you kidding? Me? God. <laughs> you should you should pick a second one. Do a different map. Okay. Yeah, I'm that one. This one. That's a good one. Yeah. All right. Which which region? So, I am Bangalore. You see Bangalore down south, left side, down yeah. south. Yeah. Bangalore. So that's my state. This and the, uh, the California the of India. Place. I'm sorry. Is this the California of India? Uh, no. Just okay. the city is 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 probably the San San Jose, San Francisco region. Like the Silicon Valley is that city. Yeah. Okay. Very specifically. So that city, along with the city on top, which is Hyderabad, those were like the two cities that are uh, very prevalent in software. Bangalore is more nicer because I think the weather is good and people like to live here. But yeah, so all of these each states, except the ones on the right side, which is Hyderabad, the Telangana and Andhra Pradesh, they both were a single state before. They speak a same language. Karnataka speaks a different language. Tamil Nadu speaks a different language and Kerala speaks a different language. So each state was sort of somehow before split by language. I see. And then you have like right here in the like the far south, the Tamil. And I always, if I'm downloading a BitTorrent, I always see that that oh. word Tamil. It's like, oh yeah, the Tamil language version. 
It's like this region of Tamil India. Version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like they're also the or... most exported people uh, in the tech industry. Uh, they're also the most. Uh, um, I think they're also the most educated in terms of basic education. In terms of hitting, saying, "Ah, your minimum education you have to be at least like a computer science engineer and stuff like that." Right. So they were actually quite well educated uh, a few years ago, and then they were able to bring that whole software boom and ride that wave and get out. Uh, into a lot of places so that's why we have that um, sometimes people are like like in in my office they're like oh, do you eat beef do you eat non-veg and i'm like i eat everything because that's what human beings are like supposed to do i mean <laughs> uh so but i do have like colleagues coming sometimes from uh, from india and there's like a running joke it's a stupid thing but it actually happened is once in a restaurant they gave a person rice and then they didn't have anything non-vegetarian. They gave a bowl of peanuts to eat it with. They got rice and bowl of peanuts because the restaurant didn't serve anything, <laughs> uh, which didn't have any meat product in it at all. It was very silly. Damn. All right. So, so yeah, there's, it's, there's that's why. There's well, those casts, and then it, how about where are those untouchables? Where do they fall in? Are they outside the system? <laughs> I don't think the untouchables exist anymore, per se, uh, not in terms of cast itself, because the, the last names have sort of are not that popular, right? Because, you know, the, the, the top class have like very powerful names. They're always in the news and they keep bringing up in like everything that you read about and stuff like that does come up. But then uh, this every city has like. I wouldn't say untouchables anymore. That's that's not a term that we use any, anymore. It's more like, I mean, for example, Mumbai has something called Dharavi. You can probably Google that. That's something that uh, should be exposed as one side of the whole city, right? Uh, how, do you, how do you spell that? D-H-A-R-A-V-I. Yeah. All right. That's a so slumber, this, right? That's a slum. It is Delhi slums. This proper. is like the bottom of Midgar in Final Fantasy VII. This is this is sort of yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is like the this is where uh, people work their entire life so they can like like by cleaning houses and stuff like that. Sometimes, sometimes even lesser than that, like labor workers, so they can get like a shed to live. Yeah. Uh, for the rest of their life. This, this is rough. Right. Yeah, so not, and not then, ideal accommodations. Yeah, so if you put Dharavi and then you put put the name Ambani next to it, Ambani is this big businessman, Ambani. Yeah, that right? Yeah, yeah, and that's his house. Oh, so he's just got the most expensive house in the world, which is at the edge of this socio-economic disruption sort of rubbing it in into that whole uh ecosystem look you can see it so that's all the slums and then there's that yeah hundred story house yeah hundred story house hundred story i think it's it's the most expensive house in the world yeah he's a madman i mean that is i mean it's not that pretty though it's like very boxy. Yeah, it isn't. Like, like people are not like raving like about it for its prettiness. It's just, it's just obnoxious wealth, which is just shoved in the face of people who are who are living in tin roofs. Yeah, it's like a like a crappy looking Volvo from the nineteen eighties, but expensive. <laughs> and, so yeah, this is like the you got to rub it in. I'm sorry. You really got the flex on those poor people. 
What a guy. Yeah, but you also need like a piece of land in uh in, in the middle of a city, and this is where you can create that space, flex your muscles, use politics and power and then money all at the same time to create this architecture like an homage to yourself for what you are but anyway so the, the point was there is this whole segment which is living on the edge and then there are people who are living on the other side so then so even though the class system doesn't exist officially it sort of still is existent in the, in the minds of the people. So if you look at this uh, series called The White Tiger on Netflix, whenever you have the time, it sort of portrays some yeah. of those characteristics quite nice. And that was a book quite nice. originally, yeah. Like, I, I remember yeah. seeing that book. Like, I didn't read the book, but I remember seeing it in my house. I think my mom was reading it or something. But it's about, like, this driver for a rich guy, right? And, and the, you can really yeah. see the class differences in, in, in this story. You really understand, you, you watch this to understand the mindset of people who are in that, uh, who are in that socioeconomic uh, situation, right? So it sort of really shows that why is that people do what they do and why is that acceptable to them? Because it's not like they have a choice. This is the only life path they have. Otherwise, they would be making tea or selling something mundane. Uh, this is even more glamorous for them, just like being behind the wheels of a fancy car or whatever cool all right yeah, well so... we we've been talking for about hour and a half i don't want to keep you too long but i figure we can wrap up soon yeah. um yeah. given that you you might be hung over and you might want to close your eyes or something i, I don't I'm, know you know i'm smashing some coffee yeah right that's now. right <laughs> so i wanted to ask you um i sent you this question beforehand like how many countries have you lived in total <sighs> Uh, lived in is like a very broad term. Um, more than six months, not much. Just maybe, uh, just two, like India and uh, India and Taiwan. But less than that, maybe over a month, between one month and six months. Uh, I'd put three months as as the the bare minimum to have to say you. Three live months is the bare minimum. Then yeah. that would just be. Three would be Dubai, India, and Taiwan. Yeah. Okay. But right. yeah, I would not consider myself a well-traveled expat by any terms. But All in right, terms well, of sheer number of cities that I've been to, I think that would be and that would be quite. I mean, not as impressive as yours, obviously. But then I have a I have a nice little number. I think I have like close to 40, 45 cities that I've been to around the world. That's quite quite nice. That's a lot of cities. Well, I just wanted to to do the big announcement, which is the Mr. Worldwide announcement. Oh! Wow! Oh, my nose. I do not stand a chance at it that. Is, it is raining out of my nose. This is disgusting. And I'm, 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 I got my face here with my, my Razer Keo webcam pulling it in in HD. <laughs> it's surprisingly clear how much precipitation is like coming out of your nose right now. Oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> I, I was hoping, I was hoping my, my uh, screen was so small people wouldn't notice. It No, there's like a giant pile of tissues right here. It's insane. Look at this. Oh disgusting. my god. <laughs> this, my allergies are so bad. I, I was thinking about canceling the show. I probably should have been like postpone it from my, yeah. my uh, nose. Yeah. taken like uh, a few days to figure it out acting like yeah. this but i don't know I, I hate rescheduling things so i thought we'd just do it okay I, yeah. I, okay yeah i was just gonna say 
three Mr. Worldwide. I think that counts. So the UAE and you, or no, sorry, it was UAE, right? You were saying the Emiratis. The Emiratis are are the the top cast in that region, right? Emiratis, yeah. Like, like you really want to know what rich is is when you build a flyover to your house, which you will never use because you have a chopper. But this is for other people to come to your house. That's when you know you're rich. Like, I want regular people to drive up to. Oh, so they didn't have like an airport for regular people too. No, like if you're a regular person, you can't fly into the house. You have to drive in. Only that family gets to fly in into that house, which is also big on a man-made uh, island <coughs> in the middle of the white It was just, just silly. God, this is this is just, this is unacceptable on my part. This this too much. because <laughs> like there was like three episodes I did. Right. Also, had really bad allergies. I gotta stop doing this. I just really gotta stop doing this. Austin is killing me with the allergies. Maybe just right. anti-allergy pills or something. Just like they're good for like usually a couple of hours, and then they kick in about thirty minutes before. Wait, energy pills like like uh, methamphetamine? Allergy, okay. allergy pills. Oh, allergy pills. Okay. Allergy. I t- I no, I take them. I I take uh, I take those. I take this like herbal solution. Oh. I started taking that, and that actually helped a lot. But I stopped taking it because the allergies went away for, I'd say, like three, four weeks. They went away, and then they're back all of a sudden. Oh wow! How's how's yeah. how's your situation there? Like, uh, is everything back online? Is the, is it thawing out? Yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you about that. So the Texas freeze that was, I guess, it was a couple weeks ago, maybe two or three weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. So we were without power for maybe 14 hours it wasn't that long 14 to 16 hours somewhere in there it was on the it was on the monday of that week and it started at 2 a.m so it was really like by 4 35 p.m we had power that day so Mm. we were actually not too bad in terms of the power situation i think a lot of people were like no power three days four days five days was insane for some people but then we had a pipe freeze and that was on the wednesday so that was two days after the power came back on. So obviously we have heat. We have a fireplace. We're building a fire. So we're keeping the house relatively warm. warm. And then a pipe still managed to freeze. And then that, you know, we had to shut our water off because it was leaking water everywhere. So we didn't have water oh. for almost a week. And uh, because the roads were so icy, there were no plow trucks that were just ready to go. Like if you live in the North in the U S it's like clockwork, the snow comes down, the plow trucks are out there throwing salt in the roads and plowing, plowing stuff. So they don't have that here. They're just, they're not set up for it because it's Texas. It's not Massachusetts. This this is a, like the last time it snowed in every County of Texas was like 127 years ago or something. So it's, it's not like a normal thing. So, um, yeah, they're not outfitted for it. And then the roads are stopping plumbers from getting anywhere. And then, you know, the plumbers have so much demand because every house has frozen pipes. So it took a week to get a plumber. So I ended up getting a hotel one night just so I could take a shower and clean up. and Especially feel, up. Just feel, feel like, like a normal human being. Yeah, I didn't want to feel like a caveman anymore. You know, it was like winter camping for a week. That's that's what we went through. If you were prepared, it, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, if you're prepared, it wasn't that bad. Like, if you like camping and you had gear and you had you had warm stuff, you had, you could build a fire, you had enough food to eat. It was it was like a little adventure. 
But if you didn't have that, it, it might have been like hell, you know. Also, basic some some basic skill set, right? It's not like everybody knows all of these things to do. Like, hey, what do you do if it's if it gets cold? What do you do if like I don't know? Like, I know people who would not know what to do if the pipe pipe freezes over. Like, they wouldn't have the common sense to go out and switch off the the mains to prevent the whole thing from flooding flooding in or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, there's there's that basic stuff, and then there was you know I, I met some neighbors of ours at a park the other day, and they were saying. That they didn't have extra water. They didn't have... They, they have a baby, too. And they didn't have, like, enough baby food. There were so many things wow. that they didn't have. And they didn't have power for three days. So they were in pretty rough shape. They had to depend on their neighbors a bit. So, I mean, people are pretty friendly here. So yeah. your neighbors will help you out, generally speaking. But, you know, it's it's so critical to be prepared. So we're getting a house built. So I'm glad because now we can be like, okay, let's get a fireplace. I think that... If, if you're going to have a house, you need a fireplace. You need that. Even if you live in Texas, you need it. You know, Because if it gets cold and there's no power, you got to keep warm. you got to build a fire. A hundred years later, like, or like, whatever. I, I, I think it just took a hundred years, but from now on, it might be a more often thing than not. And plus, it's also like a good life skill that people can just pick up and then sit down with a toasty fire by your legs on a winter. Yeah. Oh, that too. Yeah, yeah. And we and we had enough firewood because we were doing recreational fires just for fun at home, like the weeks leading up to this. So we had a ton of firewood. So we, we were okay. You know, we were, but we were prepared. Uh, if you weren't like, yeah, and these same people who had the baby, they didn't have enough firewood. They have a fireplace, but they had no wood. And then you go out in the woods, it's all wet and frozen, you know, so all the, all the wood is wet. So, you know, you're screwed. You don't have like fire or heat to thaw it out or dry it out even. Yeah. And just like a slippery slope, you just keep going down and down. Yeah. I see yeah. how this goes. So yeah, that's the way I feel is if if stuff goes down, let's say we let's say you want to blame it on climate change. Let's say we all go fully carbon neutral. I think bad weather is still gonna happen. I don't think we're ever gonna solve that problem. Bad weather's gonna happen, so you gotta be prepared. Earthquakes, you know, hurricanes, this these things happen regardless of human behavior, so be prepared. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's just fair enough. Because we've had like quite a few, like in Taiwan, I think uh, just a few weeks before we had I think a seven point four or something. Like we were sleeping in a bed and then it sort of shook you and woke you up in the middle of the night is one of the freakiest things that you've thought about you've like i've gone through it was it was it was not as bad as last year but it was still quite bad and that sort of like put things in perspective like um we woke up and i'm like let's just go open the door and then just like stay here like basic things Right, like that's not something my neighbors did. Like I saw all of their doors were closed. I'm like, well, what if there's like pressure, and then you're not able to get out of the house anymore? Like, yeah, damn, that's yeah, that's something you don't think about unless you've been taught it, you know? Yeah, it's, or you've experienced it. Like I've the reason I know that is because we had construction in the top house once, and there was pressure, and our and the doors just jammed where the sill and the, the door meet, and it just jammed, and we couldn't get out. Like somebody had to come and hack it out uh, there's no way you could break that was the main door it was like built to last people trying to get it so basically Jeez. you had to like break it down so anyway uh I'm, I'm glad you guys are safe and then hopefully things are going to start looking up uh, better for you huh? hopefully maybe in the next one or two weeks you get back to normalish 
Oh no, it's back to normal. No, I mean it's it's today oh, was okay. t-shirt. Today was t-shirt weather. I mean like uh, like a week oh, after wow. this happened, you could wear shorts and a t-shirt. It, it was it just bounced back to normal almost immediately. But it was like the aftermath of the plumbers being backed up. You know, like it took a little extra while to get the plumber back, but once he came, the water was back running. Things mm. were normal again. It was you know back to work. You know, it was almost like a vacation. Nobody was working during this week. You know, <laughs> like nobody. <laughs> you know, it's just it was survival know. mode. You know, it was back to basics. It's like okay, the priority now is stay warm, eat food, stay, alive. stay hydrated. Yeah, it was stay. You know, it wasn't like oh, I'm gonna check my Gmail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened to my contracts. Yeah, I got I got a few Trello notifications. I think I'm gonna ignore those until until my power back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Because I think if you don't have for like 14-18 hours, if you don't have, and this is like stupid first world problems. How do you contact people? Because like most houses don't have landlines anymore. They're all working off cell phones, and then you don't have power in your cell phone. It's just downhill from there. Well, if you have a car. And you can charge in your car. Like oh, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my solution. Yeah, I actually, I never lost a charge during the Texas freeze. I, I always had a phone. I had, reception was worse during it somehow. I don't know how, but it was it was worse during it. Like it was a lot harder to send a video or a text or something, you know, oh. over, over uh, iMessage or something, you know, if you get an iPhone. And, hmm. uh. But yeah, my car, I mean, I could just start my car, run that. I got like an adapter. I could I could plug like a normal like computer even, like a computer charger into my car if I wanted to. Into your car. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, also with the heater and stuff, the car becomes like a second mobile home if you have like, if it's big enough or something. Yeah. You, you just, yeah. you just got to remember to get gas because that for like a week, there was no gas because uh, oh, the yeah. gas stations, keep- the supply lines were cut off. Like the roads weren't open, uh, therefore the gas trucks couldn't come. Therefore, the grocery stores can be restocked. So that's where you really see supply chain. I mean, people were talking about the power companies with the Texas freeze. I think the roads were probably the most critical issue in Texas during that week. It was the roads, not necessarily the power grid. Yeah, because if your power is shut off, maybe somebody has a generator a mile away. How are you going to get there? You know. Correct. Yeah. Or if there's like a truckload of generators coming into town, you won't. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Run those generators. <laughs> yeah, because there there were all these community community driven solutions during this period. There was all these community centers that were like warming centers. You know, it's like come and come and we have a generator. We we're running the heat. Come over and warm up. You know, but you couldn't do that if the roads are iced and there was no plow trucks and right. no salt. You know. <sighs> And you wouldn't want to be caught outside walking because states is not a place where you walk from place to place. And that's where really. I like Taiwan. I mean, it would have been it would have been safe if you're in where I'm at. At least it would have been safe. It just if you were warm, that is, if you had boots and hmm. like hmm. four or five layers of clothes, it was like freezing cold, you know. But uh, yeah, yeah, we we made it through. Like uh, I feel like it was a good learning experience for everybody. It's like a good reminder that we're. Uh, we're vulnerable. We're, vo- we're very vulnerable, yeah. you know? Things can fall apart very easily. Yeah, it just takes a week. People I mean, also there were all bad. warning signs and stuff, so you keep watching out and don't do toilet paper or whatever. Anyway. Yeah. I tell you what, everybody forgot about COVID that week. The COVID was not an issue that week. There was like some, maybe some headlines. <laughs> like, 
well, a Texas freeze is really going to be a problem for COVID. It's like, nobody cares about COVID here right now. We care about being warm. <laughs> nobody cares about this. This is the priority, is warmth. True. Yeah. Wow. Wow, looks like uh, you've had a good couple of weeks already. Huh? It's nice to know that at least you're back up and running. So, yeah, yeah we should catch up more after them then. Yeah, yeah, we should. Like today was Saturday. We just kind of hanging out, went to the park with my son and my wife. And then we we decided to drive 40 miles to get some barbecue. There's like a great barbecue place in this small town called Lockhart. It's it's the, hmm. the quote, uh, barbecue capital of Texas. So it's pretty close oh, wow. to Austin. Okay. We went there, got some good stuff. So that's just what you do in Texas. You drive places. And if it freezes, you it's can't like, drive anywhere. You eat, you, know? you eat barbecued meat and you chill. Because like, I was surprised. I remember our uh, North Carolina trip. And I was surprised by the amount of food you guys were putting out. And I was taking kids' portions, basically, for all practical purposes. And <laughs> just like, oh, I'm done with this. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, you go to Asia and oh. it's like... I want to get a large drink and like this is a medium in America. This is this is or this is a small in America. Like the large drink or something. It's a, yeah, it's 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 an excessive like, place. Super like somebody considers carrying a liter of liquid, putting that. I mean, your stomach doesn't even have space for that. I think my stomach. I did the measurements. I think it's about six hundred and fifty to seven hundred grams, seven hundred ml. That's my capacity. I can't eat more than that. It's just funny how how somebody could have trained themselves to eat so much more. So you can chug one pint and then maybe a little more. I can chug just over one pint. And then you got to wait a little bit or else you're just, uh, it's all coming back at you. True. I have to give it about five, ten minutes. Surprisingly, the system is very efficient. So, so I am still not very stressed about that, but I can chug a pint without an issue and then sip on the other one until it drains out. All right. Well, before we go, I don't want to take up too much time. We're getting close to two hours. What's um, hmm. what's like the place you really want to visit in the world that you feel is a little out of reach now? Maybe it's a little too far away. Maybe it's a little inaccessible, a little expensive. What's what's this like kind of dream destination of yours as a traveler? I don't, I've had quite a few dream destinations before, but as I kept traveling, I think all of these sort of fell apart uh, little by little because like Tokyo, big lights, I want to see that. Like, it's nice, but I don't know if, if I really want to go and experience and visit. For me, it's more experiential at this point i want to do uh things that i won't be able to like go live in the ice hotel or uh or go to go have a safari or go i i go diving uh, very often in the covid world that's what i've done i've started diving i've had 20 something dives now uh, trying to get an advanced diving shop and hopefully by next year do like at least 70 80 dives and go diving with the sharks next uh, february that's like something that you can do in taiwan and those are things that i look forward to doing because i think places are overrated experiences are underrated and i think that's something which i look forward to doing more okay anything like kind of weird and embarrassing you want to do when it comes to experiences like you trying to go to a like hello kitty land or something like that 
I don't know. Like I think last time, uh, my wife was also like sort of pushing me towards it, and somehow we thought we wanted to go to a maid cafe, which is not really embarrassing or anything. It's just like, hey, I've never been to a maid cafe anywhere in Japan for like, I was in Japan for like almost three weeks, and I didn't go to one, and I was like, just like just silly, but uh, but I, I I still want to go up into uh, just take a motorcycle, go around Europe. uh and i want to go through like morocco turkey and that region uh just quickly speed past uh send like eastern europe and then get into like europe and then right there i think that's something i've really wanted to do for a long time and uh, hopefully i will get to do that uh, whenever i i just try to figure out when i can do that but even if it's two separate things i want to take like a nice little motor across europe yeah i think I'm kind of on the same page in terms of like the mode. It's like my ideal vacation is like this extended road trip where it's it's going to take time. It's not necessarily like yeah. it's hard to get there. It's just I need time to do this, you know, and this is going to take a while and I want to I want to be able to take tangents and 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 go off uh off agenda, you know, kind of go to go to this cool little town that looks nice, you know. That yeah. I plan to go. Stop to. by smell the roses a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. What there's no like say? a strict hard fast rule there's no list of uh, i want to see this 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 is this i don't want to look, look, look at like i want to look at these like five i want to look at this mosque nobody cares look at something which you which excites you i think as you grow older you also realize what your priorities are and what are things that you really want to do and i think that sort of shows through in the kind of experience you wanted to have so yeah uh, riding across europe and maybe i want to go diving uh, Uh, of uh, Philippines down south Cebu and stuff uh, i've heard like mixed reviews about it of the sharks being kept there longer because the fishermen feel it is not good for the environment and stuff like that let me evaluate a little bit more on that and see if i really want to do that or not uh, i want to go more diving i want to go uh, i want to ski i've never skied before so i want to go skiing that's something that i've really wanted to do for a while uh, well, you can do that in I'm, japan I'm, you can go to japan yeah or korea far. japan depending on wherever is uh, more accessible uh, maybe this december coming let me figure that out or maybe even go to india and then uh, go up north and ski or something cuz i went skiing here we have like an indoor arena and i was like yeah no i can i can imagine how this is going to be down a slope it would be like a lot of fun so well did yeah, so did you go to the maid cafe in the end no i did not Well, you could do that if you go skiing in Japan. So the maid cafe is kind of weird because I I did go with my family when I was in Tokyo a few years mm. ago. I brought my son there with, with my wife, and it's kind of a seedy thing, I would say, but it's also very wholesome at the same time. I don't oh. know how to describe it. It's like you, it's it's a little cafe, and there's all these like maids, and they're super kawaii. It's a bit cute, you know, Japanese word for cute. It's just cute mm, with a Japanese style. All these like really cute girls with these cute little maid outfits, and it, they're not like slutty or skanky, I would say at all. But they are very pretty, like very attractive. Maid. Yeah, they're they're very attractive, yeah. very cute, and then they're very attentive, and they're like almost like a hostess in a way. But they're super like cartoonish. They're like little cartoons, and hmm. I would say like we had a great time because like they were nice and we were just having fun. You know, it wasn't sleazy. in that way. Hmm. The the sleazy thing was the clientele because every other customer in there was like a middle-aged guy that looked really horny. 
like <laughs> there was like a few other tables in there and they're all like these like red faced dudes who are like eh, eh, eh. and it was just a little like creepy it was it was strange it was very odd hmm i mean there's like yeah I, I've, i've definitely heard about that but then that's also the reason why i was put off the first couple of times but then a lot of people i met is like no we should definitely go and do that i'm like okay i will try and do it and uh, that's one uh, i wanted to really do like the before i wanted to do that 30k tv experience in taiwan but i don't think i'll ever do that after hearing some of the stories that my friends told me here i'm like yeah i don't think that's going to happen yeah there was a hotel that whenever we do business trips to see a so we stayed in downtown and there was uh, this building we stayed in there's a nightclub in that building there's like the omni club there's a oh, yeah core. i know which one is there right? yeah yeah, yeah there, there's core And then, like up towards the top, there's the what is that, dude? I already forgot the name of that hotel, but it was it was a great, shitty hotel. And there was like yeah. definitely a KTV place in that building. That's definitely like a dirty KTV place. There's always like these really glamorous Taiwanese women going up there who are in these like night these gowns and these like old drunk dudes. Them going together. It's always oh, that. Oh. Yeah, it's definitely like a a place of ill repute that's caters to the the, the guys. I, I used to go to that around. place because. There's like a 24-hour snooker and a darts place there. Like a, you can you can play the pool a bit, and, and then it's probably like and in the same building because there's like yeah, it's like it's eight floors or like 14 floors of 14 floors of like yeah, it's like yeah. debauchery. That whole place is so commercial. It's probably like yeah, it gives you that mafia run feel a little bit. Well, yeah. I think we can we can wrap it up. Is there anything you wanted to promote or plug or mention before we go off the air? No, I think uh, the main thing is I, the life takes unexpected turns, and I never expected to be where I am. I think it's nice to just let go of the control and see where the world takes, and just follow things that you like doing. Uh, you don't necessarily have to like that thing. 10 years from now, but whatever you think you like now, explore. See if you, that's the thing that you want to do. And maybe it pays you back somewhere later on. Uh, you never know. And uh, in terms of uh, travel, um, I, I think as I reiterated before, just feel free to travel, do things that you want to do. I like motorcycles. I like seeing wide open country roads, sitting in like a smaller steezy hotel, uh, eating Uh, food with like the locals rather than going to Macau, staying at the uh, I don't know at the Caesar's Palace and then eating there. I don't know. That's not my vibe. So just do things that you are comfortable with, and then I think that should be enough to keep you happy. And that's basically what life is all about: stay happy, yeah, stay cool. In in your whole philosophy with the with the biking, how you were talking about how you you made those snap decisions and you didn't want to have a you didn't say this, but I could imagine there if you had other people with you, there'd be like a committee. A committee of decision makers who are what are we gonna do let's let's keep going come on no let's try another mm -hmm. way you know you gotta have this argument but you know you're kind of just really going at the beat of your own drum if, if that yeah that's the term you you do the decisions that you can with all the information that you have and not relying on other people so that way you own up to every decision that you make and you'll never ever blame anybody for anything that happens in your life because everything oh. is is controlled by you That's an interesting twist, then, because that's that's it's almost like it's you're learning a lesson. It's like you're going to learn from your yeah. mistakes here, and you're going to learn to trust yourself. 
you always will end up in shitty situations like whether you took the decision after consulting with 15000 people or without consulting anybody else or just with the confidence of your wife because every decision that's made is a culmination of all the experience that they have gone through if nobody's been through this nobody knows how to react so you just and even the next time when you make a decision with other people's input you don't hold other people responsible for it because you know that that was the best decision you did with all the information that you had and there's nothing wrong with that cool i think that's a great note to end on so let's end it there yeah. Uh, you don't have to hang up yet, but uh, thanks for watching. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.